is is jealousy a sensation that we just need to regulate is the question and that depends and so for those who are experiencing a quote-unquote normal amount of jealousy that comes with the territory of non-monogamy then yes when we come back to the notion that all emotions at their core are sensations that we feel in the body which we label as jealousy anger fear whatever it is then yes we can move through jealousy by regulating its sensations first And then once we let that sensation move with us or we move with it, it often uncovers deeper, uncomfortable sensations. I find that jealousy covers up usually a heaviness that often comes with sadness and grief, like grieving the monogamous relationship you once had with your partner if you opened up together, or a heated energy running through your body that we often associate with anger. And once we give these sensations the attention and care that they need, then we can work through, we can also work through the stories that our mind are making up around it, which connects the mind and body. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we are discussing non-monogamy and the body. We're doing something a little bit different today. Jace and Emily are out for this episode. It is just me, along with the wonderful Arit Krug, who is a board-certified dance and movement therapist. I am very happy to have finally completed my credentialing program for somatic experiencing therapy. So today, she and I are going to be discussing our experiences working with non-monogamous clients from a somatic approach, diving into why there can be such a disconnect between your body and your brain when undertaking something new and scary, like a non-traditional relationship. We talk about moving through sensations of jealousy, generating a sense of safe boundaries, and so much more. This was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to geek out about some of these things, and I hope that you enjoy. And just a quick note before diving in that Orit and I do talk a little bit about trauma. We talk a bit about assault. We talk a little bit about intimate partner violence. So just a heads up in case that's something that you're not in a space to listen to today. Orit Krug is an award-winning board-certified dance and movement therapist and licensed creative arts therapist. Orit helps individuals and couples expand their capacity for self-love and intimacy in relationships by processing past trauma stored in the body. Orit is polyamorous, partnered, and a parent to a toddler. Orit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, okay, people who've listened to the show know that I'm also in the somatic therapy world. And so I'm curious to hear from you, what was it that first drew you to doing somatic movement dance work? I think this is a type of therapy that is not usually like the first type of therapy that people go to when they're ready to go to therapy necessarily? Nope, nope. It's really not usually the first choice. Um, So I grew up dancing in a local studio. And at the same time, I was going through my own trauma growing up. And dance just became this safe space for me to express myself 
and to feel my emotions and to release emotions. And, you know, as I was growing up, I also just kind of intuitively knew that I wanted to be some sort of psychotherapist. And when I was a senior in high school, my mom read about dance therapy in the newspaper. And I was like, great, perfect. This is my soul's calling. Let's do it. (laughs) Wow. So it was like so clear to you from so early on that this is where you were going to be. I feel like that's rare these days. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't know it was a real thing. I got my master's degree and did thousands of hours of supervised work. And yeah, been a dance therapist for a little over 13 years now. Do you find that people have a particular assumption or a particular image in their head when they think about dance or movement therapy that you have to dispel? Yes, absolutely. It's rare that people really understand it. I actually didn't understand it either. Even when I was like, oh, I really want to do this. This sounds right. I think the most common assumption that isn't accurate is that you have to know how to dance or that it's a technical kind of dance. And really, Mm -hmm. it's about understanding the sensations in your body, um, working through trauma, if that's what you're working through, and how does your body organically want to move through it. And that just looks like a whole wide range of things, which I think we'll cover in our conversation today. Yeah, that's interesting about the technical thing. I think that uh, maybe in the States, many of us have some baggage of like, you know, being forced into baby ballet or something. I know for me, honestly, my journey with really actually trying to reconnect with my body was a lot of baggage of just like feeling like a big failure in PE class my entire Mm -hmm. childhood and coming out of my public education with this weird assumption that I'm just someone who's not good moving her body. Like I'm just not good at sports or dance. And the weird irony is that I went on to become like a professional dancer (laughs) after that. But but yeah, no, I think it is interesting that already culturally, it seems like we have so many obstacles in place preventing us from well moving in general without it being, I think, either competitive or highly technical, but also moving organically. I mean, I imagine that's a struggle when you're working with clients who are new to doing any kind of movement therapy. Um, Not even those who are new, but even those who are big into yoga, who have a history of moving. Most people, if they already have a relationship with movement, they're doing it in a very structured way. And so, yeah, organically being the keyword here, like not the way I think I should move, not the way I think other people think I should move, but how does my body really want to move through this emotion or to express myself organically, which we can really translate to all kinds of relational experiences. And other than all the cultural baggage that you've already mentioned, our bodies are the vehicle for which we interact which we feel emotions, we experience our lives and relationships through our bodies. So everything is happening through us. So how do you convince a skeptic, right? I think that we're in a time right now where I do think, fortunately, you know, therapy in general is way less stigmatized than it once was. It's much more normalized. And for better or worse, we have the rise of, you know, the Instagram therapist dropping (laughs) pithy little quotes and and nuggets of wisdom in our feeds every single day. However, it's still very much rooted in, of course, roots that go all the way back to traditional psychotherapy, still very much rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of, you know, the, the approach du jour. And so these are all approaches that are very 
heady, I think, and headiness is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think that people can sometimes see something like, oh, I'm not going to be necessarily like talking through my feelings or using all this therapy jargon. Like, how do I know that this is effective? How do I know that this is something that's going to be for me? So that was also like three questions at once. <laughs> so just kind of pick yes. whatever you want out of the spaghetti there and and we'll get started. Okay. My first instinct was I don't convince anyone anymore. There are plenty of people who are ready for this. There are plenty of people who aren't, right? There are plenty of people who are skeptical, but there are so many people who are reading The Body Keeps the Score or they're looking up polyvagal theory and they're understanding that trauma is stored in the body. And there's also a lot of people who come to work with me have this intuitive sense. They're like, I know I've done decades. Like I worked with people who've done 10, 20, 30 plus years of talk therapy and even other kinds of alternative therapies. A lot of people I work with also tried EMDR and, you know, a lot of other kinds of therapies that have been helpful, but they're still left with this feeling of like their head is disconnected from their bodies. And they know, they know and are aware of what they want to do differently and how they want to show up in their lives and their relationships differently. But it's like the body isn't on board. So there are so many people who are in that place that I think when I started, well, I started my work as a dance therapist in a psychiatric hospital. So that's a very different a different setting. But when I started my business over five years ago, taking private clients, I was more in that space of like, how do I get people to do this work? And I don't think I have to convince anyone anymore. Mm. Like, I think even people who are listening to this now, those who will resonate will be like, yeah, I really feel that. Like that, that feels like where I'm at. They're pretty far on their journey and they know it's like the, the movement and the body piece uh, scares them. And they know it's going to be a challenge. And that's how they know that's what they need to do next. Hmm. That's what a lot of people tell me. Interesting. I mean, you've described what was very much my own journey through working through my own PTSD. You know, I had like really horrible PTSD from a physically violent relationship that I was fortunately had escaped from. And, you know, it was that same thing, right? Of course, the prescription is like go to a talk therapist, right? You know, and so after dragging my feet for a long time, like I I did get into a talk therapist. And when I think about that work now, it, it is this odd thing where it was very important for me to do that work. It was very important for me to be heard. And it was very important to have someone reaffirming, I guess, some very important, again, I'll label them as cognitive messages around this wasn't your fault. You shouldn't feel ashamed. Um, you should be happy that you've gotten through this. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to experience this again. Like you're safe now. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Right. And like I, my brain did need to hear that, but I was so confused because it's like the PTSD symptoms kept happening. My brain knew everything of like, okay, I know I'm safe now. I know it's okay. I know I shouldn't be ashamed, you know, just like on repeat in a loop on a spin cycle over and over and over. And my body was still just freaking out constantly. And so for me, yeah, that like, I don't know if I would call it an intuitive sense that brought me into somatic work and eventually put me on this path of also doing somatic therapy training. I would say it was like a desperation, honestly, like an actual desperation where, yeah, I think like you described it, like my head is not connected to my body or 
or one of them is not talking to the other and like how can i get these these parts of me a little bit more aligned yeah thank you for describing that so clearly using your personal experience which really feels powerful i think that's part of the way that if i were to convince somebody <laughs> that i would relate what you're saying to the science behind that the research shows that we store primarily the the majority of our trauma memories in the amygdala of our brain and when people are going to traditional talk therapy they're using their prefrontal cortex which governs logic and verbal language and because trauma is largely stored as nonverbal memories really sensations in the body in the amygdala it affects the hippocampus, which is the part of our brain that helps us distinguish past from present. We're only using the prefrontal cortex in therapy. We're just talking to one part of the brain that isn't even storing most of the trauma. So the disconnect that you describe, like you have the words, you heard the words, it helped to an extent, which is my experience too, because I also spent several years in talk therapy, but you were still getting triggered because you weren't accessing the memories that continue to get triggered. Mm -hmm. So this is a very common experience. And there's, you know, the research includes brain mapping and it shows that when we get triggered and when we're highly stressed, which can be, right, this similar response of cortisol increasing, the prefrontal cortex, quote unquote, goes offline. Yeah. And I, I think when I was going down a rabbit hole on this stuff also, I learned that the part of our brain that converts our thoughts actually into speech also can go offline. And for me, that was this, it was this weird double bind because I knew that like if I was going to try to talk about something or if I was accessing a particularly traumatic memory that like I wouldn't want to talk about it, right? It would be like a, often very overwhelming sensations emotions, feelings, images, memories, stuff like that. But I felt that the message I was often getting in talk therapy was sort of this, like, once you can talk about it, that, that's healing, right? Once you can tell your story to someone else, automatically that means healing. And it's not like that's a total lie, you know, because I'm at a point now where, like, I can tell my story to people and it's not this incredibly activating, triggering thing. But at the time, it was so confusing for me where I was just like, well, but when I start to talk about it, I feel horrible. You know, I just feel absolutely awful. And so what do I just need to force myself through this situation again and again and again, like kind of treat it like exposure therapy. So, I mean, for me, finally finding the somatic work, finally being able to like move through some of those sensations that were in there and sort of have someone help make those sensations less scary to help kind of increase my capacity for that and also increase my capacity for feeling a sense of safety and security and and care was just like so, so vital for me. But what this is leading me to, though, is that, of course, when I think about a population of clients that like to be very heady and like to talk things out a lot in their approach, I think about the non-monogamous community. <laughs> um because I think for better or for worse, and and maybe my sample is biased because I'm thinking mostly about like listeners of this podcast, but a lot of the people that I either work with as clients in the non-monogamous community or people who are my peers, I think this is 
a population that tends to really enjoy, you know, understanding therapeutic concepts, tends to enjoy education about relationship concepts, learning about attachment theory, learning about neurodivergence, learning about different communication styles, which of course I love. And here at Multiamory, we absolutely love. And also, I think that there's some particular quirks when it comes to um, approaching non-monogamous clients with a talk-based approach versus a somatic approach. So I'm curious to know from your experience, you know, when you started working with non-monogamous clients and are there things that you've noticed about working with this population when it comes to working with the body or with movement? Yeah, great question. And yes, I think we love our terms and our, yeah, we love putting things into categories because non-monogamy is already such a paradigm shift that like we need all the stuff we need to understand and make sense of it because it can be so unsettling. Like it was so unsettling for me becoming non-monogamous and I'm still working through the paradigm shift. But when it comes to the body, when it comes to working with the body and the nervous system, there really isn't a huge distinction between my work with monogamous folks and non-monogamous folks, whatever their relationship structure. Well, that's because I, I work with people who have already identified that they are often storing trauma in their bodies and their nervous system, which create a hypervigilance and an intensified fear around abandonment, jealousy, insecurity, which, as we know, can be even more heightened, whether we're new or experienced in non-monogamy. And so at the level of working with the body, all of this looks similar, working with the trauma that is stored in the body, because the, the body experiences a trauma trigger or a trauma memory, which, again, research shows are stored as fragments of sensations, which you you talked about, right? Like a memory or a feeling in the body. It's like you could be having the best day and you walk down the street and you smell a certain smell and all of a sudden a flashback is triggered out of the blue. And it's because that smell is similar to the memory of a smell that you experience at the time of your trauma. And so when that happens, um, the body often reacts in one of a few ways, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Then we react in a way where we, I'm going to say we believe, but it's really not a conscious thing. The nervous system does whatever it needs to do to keep us safe. And usually those behaviors are behaviors that sabotage, that can really sabotage relationships. So, you know, if it's a fight response, we might get aggressive. If it's a flight response, we might just leave and drive away in the middle of a conversation. A freeze response, we may withdraw from the relationship and fawn, you know, people pleasing, abandoning our own needs to please our partners, which I think we know leads to nowhere, <laughs> nowhere mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. And so, again, whether I'm working with a couple or individual who are monogamous or non-monogamous, this all looks similar. But when we zoom out and focus on the story that's where the difference lies. So for a monogamous couple, it can be this fear of abandonment that was triggered by their partner not coming home at a certain time and not communicating about it. And that could be the same exact story for a non-monogamous couple, but maybe it's because their partner was on a date with someone else. So that complexifies or adds an another layer to this fear. Yeah, I think that Something I've noticed sometimes when working with non-monogamous folks, even people, again, who are very 
experienced at this, who are very comfortable with relating in this particular way. I do think there's so many layers of cultural messaging, right? And and if we're kind of looking at it in these two different channels, like, of course, there is the cognitive messaging that we get around monogamy is the only way to do this. What you're doing is immoral or it's wrong or it's bad or whatever. And then I feel like there's this other layer of where where people can do a lot of work around, no, I feel very solid in my identity. I feel very solid in my choice to relate in this particular way. I feel very comfortable having conversations or debates with people who disagree with me or I feel like I have good boundaries around that and can protect myself. But then I do think that there's sort of these messages that can come in through this like more felt sense channel, something that's more stored in our emotions and in our body sensations around things like the experience that we had the first time someone ever broke up with us for someone else, right? Those feelings around finding out that our parents were getting divorced, those like body sensations that got stored around um, this one comes up a lot with hinges of being a child of divorce and running interference between two parents. That one happens a lot with hinges, I find. Or even these bigger messages around, oh, like when you're here at home while your partner's out on a date, like this imagery really matches with the imagery of someone essentially being like uh, taken advantage of. Or, oh, like when you're on this date with this married person, this imagery really matches this imagery of you being a homewrecker. And I do think that as fortified as your brain and heart can be against all of the obstacles and all of the pushback that non-monogamy gets, that I do think there is something below the neck that still stores these deep feelings of shame, fear, rejection, you know, all of those things. It's like there's this big kind of like primordial soup that gets built up over time. And I know when I'm working with people, yeah, like that's what often people talk about is this weird sense of like feeling this deeper exhaustion or this deeper sense of malaise, even though they feel very affirmed and safe in their relationships or in their community. Yeah, you bring up a good point about the disconnect between the mind and the body, right? Like the mind is firm and secure, but the body is still... Like what you're naming is there are these unresolved traumas that are being remembered through these new situations, which is exactly what happened to me when I opened up my my relationship. I was secure and I am secure with my husband. We've been together for over 10 years. And I'm like, great, I'm secure. You know, like I guess I healed all my uh, traumas and anxious attachments. Oh, as soon as as soon as that comes out, as soon as that comes out of your mouth, the universe is just like, nope, nope. I mean, I didn't have to think about it, right? But then when I started, when we started dating separately, it was like, oh, okay, rude, rude awakening. Like you have not resolved all this. You just got secure with with your partner, and you haven't had to work through this in over a decade. And it's, I mean, that's the beauty of non-monogamy is we almost get a second chance to work through these unresolved traumas that we may have never had the opportunity to if we didn't open up. But it does come with, yeah, it comes with a lot of work. And I see this in my work too, like even on a, like I was working with one couple where the female partner was saying verbally, I'm I'm happy with this. I'm good with this. Um, her, her partner was dating someone new. I'm happy for you. And the male partner 
was communicating, I feel like you're not, I feel like you're not okay with this, which made her upset, right? And unvalidated her. And they were starting to go around in circles talking about this. And I just was like, all right, let's, let's have this conversation in movement. And I had them do kind of a call and response thing where instead of saying, hey, I'm okay with this, move your body gesture, what you put, like put these words into gestures. And I know that sounds really abstract, but, you know, I was talking them through that. And when she did her movements, they were very, they were moving in all different directions. And they, her movements were not direct or straight, straightforward at all. <clears throat> they actually felt a little bit chaotic to all of us who were witnessing this. And what she ended up connecting from this movement is that actually she does feel pulled in many different directions. She's happy being non-monogamous. She wants it. It feels right. But she's also scared. She's upset. She's grieving the monogamous relationship that she once had with her partner. And of course, this is all so normal to be experiencing the whole spectrum of emotions. But for whatever reason, she was either wasn't realizing that or she didn't feel safe to feel. And I think there are also messages of like, you can't feel jealous or, you know, you have to just be happy and happy for me. And that movement revealed so much in just such a quick time that we were then able to acknowledge the feelings that were there and work through them. Yeah, I, I think that what strikes me as so interesting and powerful about doing this kind of work is, I mean, I, I know we're all familiar with the the aphorism because of the book title, you know, about the body keeping the score, but I feel like the body is also worse at lying than our brains are. And maybe to maybe to say lying is is a little bit dramatic, but I mean, but I know I can show up to a talk therapy session and whether it's by myself or it's with a partner that, like you said, like my prefrontal cortex is online to a certain extent. That means I'm putting my best foot forward to a certain extent. I know I want to get an A plus in therapy. And so to a certain extent, I, I know how to tell my particular story, express my emotions verbally in such a way that maybe can still keep me relatively safe and protected and not having to be too vulnerable. And then once we sort of turn off that particular channel of just being able to word salad our way around our feelings, and provided that someone feels like just safe enough and comfortable enough to actually move organically in that particular way, I think there's so much information that comes out that's much more difficult to hide. At least in my experience working with people somatically and also my experience being on the client side of things, it's just like so much harder to, I guess, put a nice, pretty package on the things that I'm experiencing or feeling because they kind of just come out the way that they're going to come out. And and there's no kind of peeling away these layers of intellect or, or cognition or stuff to kind of get to the heart of it. It kind of cuts straight to the heart of like what's actually being felt in that particular moment. Absolutely. We are really good at filtering our feelings through words. We are experts at choosing what we say. But when it comes to the body, it's very hard to hide the way we feel, which is what's scary about doing this work. And also what's so powerful and efficient, like that story that I just told you about my clients that was revealed in just a few minutes of moving. And to add to what you're saying, it's not just that we 
are great at manipulating our words to sound a certain way, but there are simply things we just, some people, a lot of people who have experienced trauma, they don't even have the words for it yet, whether they experience trauma pre-verbally in the first two years of life or the trauma, there are trauma memories that are so stored in the nonverbal space that until we move together and until they feel safe to move this, they don't even realize it's there. I was working with one client who a few sessions in, we started moving with more powerful movements. She really wanted to be able to be her her main issue was that whenever she and her partner were getting into conflict, she would freeze up and she would go silent and yeah, she would be re-triggered. And she really wanted to be able to stay in the conversation and be able to work through this conflict with her partner. And so in moving that, we moved these more powerful, firm movements. And immediately this fear came up. And usually what people want to do when fear comes up, especially in this work, is freeze. They want to stop it. And I don't, again, I'm saying that in a conscious way, but that's the nervous system that automatically reacts in a freeze response, which is quite an intense response because the freeze response helped us tense our muscles so much to the point that we wouldn't get eaten alive by predators. We'd be less appetizing. So that's a pretty intense response. So when you're feeling a feeling and then you freeze... It's like you don't feel safe. And so she, she, her instinct was to freeze. And this is part of the work. It's like regulating, staying present in the relationship with, with me as the therapist and also in their bodies. So like, how do you want to move? How do you want to move your body right now? And allowing them to start moving. She started swaying. And then as she was getting more in her body, how do you want to move your body now? And she started moving bigger movements, which show that she was starting to feel more comfortable expressing a bit bigger, taking up more space. And then I asked one more time, how do you want to move now? How does your body want to move? That's actually how I asked it. How does your body want to move? And she started doing more powerful movements again, which is more regulated, but it brought up this memory. She realized just in that moment why moving power felt so fearful because the way that she witnessed domestic violence was an abuse and misuse of power. And this very specific memory came up when she was 13 years old. She stood between her mother and her father. Her father was holding a gun to her her mother, pointing a gun. And she's like, oh my God, I like she had been in therapy for so long and that never came up. So some of these memories they can just come up through movement. And she was actually really relieved by that. Like she could, is like, it came up and she was able to let it go. She's like, wow, I was holding on to that for 25 plus years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's powerful. Like you, sometimes you can't access this stuff through words. Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes I know when I've been on the client side working in this way, there's almost, this sensation of, of like within everything that makes up me, you know, all of my memories, all of my traumas, all of my, uh, you know, personality quirks, all of my neuroses, everything that goes into me, there's like this secret behind the scenes, Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia pointing to the conspiracy theory board of the things that are connected that I don't even realize are connected. And like, again, our brain can make like certain connections. And I think especially in this day and age when 
therapy and therapy language and therapy concepts are becoming so normalized that our brains are can be really good about like, yes, I'm anxious attached. And I know that it's because, you know, this thing happened with my parents and like my dad was always this way and my mom was always this way. And then like this kept happening to me in my relationships. And so that's why I'm anxious attached that like we're good at connecting those dots. But then sometimes when you just kind of open up this channel, either through movement or whatever, that something completely unexpected can come forward. I know that's happened to me so many times where I'm like, oh my God, like this very specific memory of a fight that my parents had actually is connected to the what, what the feelings that are coming up in the conflict that I'm experiencing right now with my partner. And it's a little bit more direct than just, oh, the reason I'm experiencing these these feelings and this conflict is because I'm anxious attached or or whatever. And so, yeah, it is like uncovering this amazing constellation that your inner self has put together and sort of untangling some of those knots and understanding things a little bit better. Before we continue this conversation, I'm going to take a quick break to talk about some of the ways that you could help support this show. If you appreciate this show, if you appreciate the information, if you've gotten something useful out of one of our episodes or several of our episodes, please consider listening to our sponsors. It really does help support us and help make it so that we can keep producing this show for free. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. I wanted to shift the topic just a tiny bit when you were when you were talking and sharing that story earlier. It started making me think about boundary work. Now, I'm really excited about boundary work. It's something that I do with my clients pretty frequently, but I was kind of wondering about what you've noticed. If you've ever had clients who've approached you feeling like they're having trouble with figuring out their boundaries or they're having trouble with enforcing their boundaries or stuff like that. Like, is that ever something that that has come up in the work that you do? Absolutely. Yeah. And it usually, I feel like the pattern usually presents itself as it's one polar opposite, one polar side or the other. Like people are either so strong in their boundaries And they're like, I have to, you know, it has to be this way and I can't have it this way. And it's so 
firm and direct to the point where there's no wiggle room or the other side where it's like, I abandon my needs, I abandon my boundaries because I'm so afraid that, you know, I'm so afraid of abandonment that I'll just, I'll just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of my, one of my favorite things to play with in this work is these polar sides of, of anything. So that firmness and that softness on the extreme sides, we can move being really firm and being really direct, truly like physically in movement. And we can also play with softness, like actually exploring softness in your body. And then what does it feel like to connect those two? That's been one of the most mind-blowing discoveries in my clients, not in their minds, but in their bodies. I can be strong and soft at the same time. I can move directly with softness. And actually trying that on in physical movement gives them this embodied confidence and awareness and experience of being able to do that in their relationships. We can test that out even in the way we speak. Like, I'm going to speak with this firmness, but I can speak with the softness at the same time. It's That's part of integration, integrating these different parts of me that come out in these situations. I love that. I love that image of like moving directly with softness, like moving in both strength and with softness. Because I do feel like that perfectly encapsulates when our own personal boundaries are working the most effectively for us. The work that I tend to do with people, especially people who are coming in with maybe a history of assault or a history of being severely taken advantage of in relationship, basically a history of, you know, their boundaries kind of being plowed over multiple times often. And there is something so powerful about generating that that felt sense of strength and security within the boundary that again, and I, I feel like we're both going to sound like broken records here, but again, that's not just this heady sense of, okay, I've figured out what my boundaries are and I can state them to people clearly. But this actual felt sense of like, no, there is something that is protecting me that is generated from within, right? And when I work with people, sometimes it's repairing a sense of even being aware of the fact that like your skin is a boundary that's kind of protecting the inside of you from the rest of the world. Repairing and feeling into that sense of the fact that your limbs kind of provide a particular boundary for you. You know that like it creates this particular bubble of space around you that actually protects you. And then again, really fortifying that sense that again, this is going to sound dramatic, but almost that there is like this inner power within you to protect yourself in this particular way. And if you've had a really long relationship history, again, of feeling like your boundaries were completely plowed over, feeling like you couldn't really enforce them or feeling like they were never considered or never given the time of day, it's easy to lose that sense, right? And I think that that can lead to this very anxious sense of maybe that overcompensating of like, I have to be super hyper vigilant about my boundaries or have to be very tight fisted about my boundaries. I have to make sure that everyone knows exactly what they are. And I have to like really lead with that in every single interaction. But then when someone shifts into feeling a little bit more grounded in that, I find that that need often melts away for people. You know, there's almost like a little bit more of a self-trust in their ability to express a boundary, protect themselves when it's necessary, when they have to, and to do it in such a way that's not like 
um, a very aggressive, violent sort of way of protecting themselves. Exactly. I was going to say the exact same thing. Like, it's a lack of trust in self. You know, if I have to be super firm in setting, saying and stating these boundaries, you know, almost like word vomit, it's like I have to let everyone know because I don't even know if I'm going to be able to set them when I'm triggered or when I'm feeling a certain way. And that is an embodied experience, trusting yourself to move. I'm not talking about like dancing or moving and right. Like, again, we move when we're in interaction, we're moving, we're gesturing. We may be going closer to someone. We may be moving away. We're deciding how much space we want, how it's trusting ourselves, how we want to move or how we move in relationship to others. Mm. And we can talk about that. But that is where we started with this podcast is that the body doesn't often align with the intentions. The body isn't quite connected. The, the mind knows I, you know, when my partner does this or when my metamor does this, I want to be able to speak up in a calm, loving, but assertive way. But the body's just like, I don't know, maybe there's a sensation of heated energy going through the arms and it's like, I have to say this and it comes out really strong and aggressive and body's not on board. The body doesn't quite know how to move in this soft but firm way. Well, so speaking of heated, aggressive feelings, I want to bring up the always the hot topic when it comes to non-monogamy that everyone wants to work through, talk about, think about, get more tips on is about the sensation of jealousy. And I've as I've started to work more with people in this particular realm, some questions have come up. For some people, it's the sense of, okay, you know, when I connect with these felt sensations of jealousy, okay, is this just a sensation to be regulated away? Or is this a deep trauma response? Is this a deep attachment panic that's happening? Or I think there's a little bit of jealousy can kind of like straddle many different spheres, at least the, the feelings that come up can straddle many different spheres. And sometimes I think people do get confused around, I mean, for lack of a better question, like, oh my God, how serious is this? Is this just something I need to just let this wave pass through me? Or is this like some kind of PTSD that's coming up? And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that or your experience working with that. Yeah, that's a great question. Jealousy in non-monogamy and in life is normal to have. So I'm going to say that first. I don't think we can hear it too many times. And so if is, is jealousy a sensation that we just need to regulate is the question. And that depends. And so for those who are experiencing a quote unquote normal amount of jealousy that comes with the territory of non-monogamy, then yes, when we come back to the notion that all emotions at their core are sensations that we feel in the body which we label as jealousy, anger, fear, whatever it is, then yes, we can move through jealousy by regulating its sensations first. And then once we let that sensation move with us or we move with it, it often uncovers deeper, uncomfortable sensations. I find that jealousy covers up usually a heaviness that often comes with sadness and grief, like grieving the monogamous relationship you once had with your partner if you opened up together, or a heated energy running through your body that we often associate with anger. And once we give these sensations the attention and care that they need, then we can work through, we can also work through the stories that our mind 
are making up around it, which connects the mind and body. But then on the flip side, if the sensations and reactions coming up around jealousy are so intense and uncontrollable, then that indicates a trauma response. And that does require a deeper process of processing trauma and rewiring the nervous system around these sensations and expanding one's window of tolerance of safety to be able to navigate jealousy without exploding or dysregulating or withdrawing to the point that it may sabotage their ability to be in relationship. So, yeah, that leads me to, I guess I'll throw at you the impossible question that clients also sometimes like to throw at me, which is this, you know, sometimes I I think people may identify through doing some of this work like, ooh, yeah, there is actually a trauma response underneath this. Uh, You know, my experience of jealousy is like much more overwhelming than I was expecting that it would be, or it's much less controllable than I thought that it would be. Does this mean it's always going to be this way? Does this mean that choosing any kind of non-normative form of relating is just not an option for me? Or can I work through this or not? Like, I think that I see a lot of people suffering around that question of, okay, so I feel this particular way. Is that something that if I can just fix it, then Mm -hmm. all my non-monogamous relationships are going to be okay? Or is this just a part of what makes it me, me, and maybe I shouldn't be in this type of relationship? Well, you had originally said that they are having a trauma response. So I don't think your trauma is you. Your trauma isn't you. It's the way that you are currently wired to react to certain situations, especially one as fragile and intense as jealousy. So that would be my first answer is, no, this isn't you. And the other thing that came up when you were asking that question is like, it's not a this or that. It's like, go slower. There's so much coming up. I mean, that's what happened for me when I opened up my relationship and I was like, whoa, there's a lot to work through. I I took a break from dating. I I had to I had to like take some space and really work through this stuff and it's okay to slow down your journey and I think that's hard when you are with a partner for example who is maybe dating and you're like it's bringing up more stuff and it's like if I just have my own partner then um you know right yeah the perfect uh, on paper solution yes yes <laughs> guilty no. uh-huh, uh-huh. um yeah so but just yeah go slower because These things feel intolerable when we try to rush through them and we try to find that fix and that resolution so quickly. But when you're working with trauma, it has its own process. I've worked with clients where we can resolve the trauma really quickly. I've worked with clients where it takes longer. I mean, it really depends on each person, each couple and the co-creation of the, the trauma happening together. But either way, it's a neuro physiological shift that needs to happen. And if you have a nervous system, which we all do, it can be shifted. It just, Mm. I think, you know, people get impatient, which I understand. I do too. It can happen. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I want to tie this to what we were talking about earlier with labels and concepts that, you know, I think that there's a particular journey sometimes that we need to go on. Something that I know has been shared a couple of times on this show is this idea that some people finding a label, and let's say for the sake of example, their attachment style, you Mm -hmm. know, for some people finding, oh my goodness, I'm avoidant. 
like, I'm so glad I have a word to put to it, right? At the very least, I have a word to put into Google to find some more resources. I have a word to act as shorthand to share with people like, oh, this is so great. And for other people, you know, you know, they're very millennial and it's like, no labels. Oh my God, I can't be boxed in by labels. Right. You know, and that's, that's totally fine. But then something that can happen is like, I think sometimes the joy and the comfort and the peace that sometimes comes from finding a particular label, whether it's labeling your attachment style or the particular type of trauma or the particular type of PTSD that, that, that you're dealing with there, I think there can be this tendency to collapse it into the sense of self, you know, to collapse into, I, I am this attachment style. That is who I am. I am this particular flavor of trauma. Like that is who I am. And that is how I'm always going to operate. And I think there is this delicate dance where on the one hand, I know I never want to just tell someone like, oh, just get over it. You can fix that, (laughs) right? Just get over your avoidant attachment. You can just fix that because that's not really how it works. And also there does need to be this differentiation, right? This sense that like, this can be a part of you that you maybe literally or metaphorically have to dance with sometimes. And also it can be shifted and it can be shifted in a direction that's more sustainable for you and also more supportive of your human relationships at the same time. Absolutely. And our, you know, when it comes to trauma, we're working with the nervous system. And if the nervous system doesn't feel safe, the nervous system feels pushed too hard, it's going to constrict back into safety. And that is a huge inner dilemma that I see with a lot of clients is wanting to move through it faster or wanting this intense experience, especially on retreat, right? Like it's an, it's an intensive experience, but actually we don't do anything super intense. We don't rush through the process. It's this gentle, gradual release and working through the stuff that actually creates the most change. And yeah, I think when we try to, and you can, we can feel this in the body, like when there's this urgency, this urgency around healing or just getting to this place already, it's kind of counterproductive. Mm-hmm. We have to feel relaxed and, and, and open and safe, literally, physically in the body. And I do think those terms, while they can be helpful, can serve as another way to disconnect from the body. When we overanalyze and we think and we're looking for more labels and I call it toxic self-awareness, which some people don't like, but some people also really- (laughs) I love that. I love that. I'm going to write that down. We're going to do an entire episode just about that. That's wonderful. Okay. I actually, I came up with that term a couple of years ago and I wrote an article about on Elephant Journal. I was like, I feel like this has to spread, but you know, it hasn't Mm -hmm. yet, but Mm -hmm. yeah, let's let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Um, nice, Nice. Yeah. So it further disconnects us from the body when we're like trying to figure out more terms or trying to figure out more category, you know what I mean? And going back to jealousy or any powerful emotion, we can feel so hijacked by these feelings, by these sensations. And if we go back into our heads through it, like, what is this about? Why can't I figure it out? You're not really working with the sensation. And what's most powerful is to be able to become in command of these sensations and again, when we're just so much going back into the mind, it's taking us further from that. I'm curious in your work, because this is something that I've noticed sometimes when people start getting into somatic work or movement-based work and they're having a lot of success with it and they're really enjoying it a lot. Sometimes I see it tip 
into a place that I might call some spiritual bypassing in the sense of of like, because sometimes it can be, oh my God, like I'm having a jealousy freak out today because my partner did yada, 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 yada. Like, can you just like sit with me and kind of guide me through some movement to like work it through <laughs> or or just like sit with me and kind of help me generate some sense of like feelings of like safety and security and feeling good and like, okay, great, awesome. Okay, now I can pop back into my normal life now that I've sort of, I don't know, I, I guess sort of erased <laughs> the feelings of distress that I was feeling in a particular way. And there are some clients where doing that work is the work itself, right? So it's like connecting to that sense of safety and, and security and connecting back to feelings of goodness in the body is the thing that they need. And they need that repeated in order to kind of work through some stuff. And then I see some clients where it is kind of like, I feel like they're on a, a merry-go-round on a carousel in their relationship of the same things coming up again and again and again and again. And they're coming kind of just as like a pressure release valve to then jump back into it. Is that something that you've ever encountered in your practice? Yeah, yeah, of course. We just want to chase the good feelings, right? But healing isn't about just feeling good. Healing is about feeling all the feelings, the ones that feel good and the ones that don't. And I find that the deepest healing, which I'm still really deeply embodying, is acceptance of all of our parts and the full spectrum of our experiences and our emotions, which when we accept the full spectrum and all the parts of ourselves, like the part of me that feels jealous and insecure about my partner being in a relationship. But then there's also this part of me that feels really happy and excited for him to be experiencing this. When I can integrate these parts and have acceptance for this experience that I'm having that seems conflicting, but is really just human, I not only accept and love myself more, but I can hold all of that at the same time for my clients, for my partner, for my friends. Because when I accept that in myself, I accept that in other people. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, yeah, that was good to that was good. I'm gonna write that one down. <laughs> I guess I wanna say that you mentioned spiritual bypassing. And I think that happens because people aren't accepting their full spectrum of emotions. And this can look like bringing some uncomfortable feelings to one of your partners about something that happened and your partner gets defensive. You know, they feel like they've done something wrong because you're experiencing a negative emotion. They're not an acceptance of you having a negative emotion which is a reflection of their own stuff, that they're not in acceptance. It's a reflection. It's it's like a clear exposing mirror of like, I haven't done the work to accept all of my emotions, so I can't hold that for you. Well, okay, this is a good segue because I want to, we've been spending a lot of time talking about, I guess, the emotions and the feelings that are nobody's favorite emotions and feelings. <laughs> you know, the trauma, the jealousy, the panic, the anger, the the grief, the sadness. But Within the spectrum, there's also these really wonderful emotions, things like pleasure and care and safety. And I want to spend some time talking about the whole sensational whirlwind that is also new relationship energy, because this is also something that can show up that can be maybe, dare I say, destabilizing and uh, dysregulating at times. And so I want to hear your thoughts also about working through those sensations. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up too, because I feel like 
so far we've made this work sound really difficult. <laughs> and also this work is, of course, profound and life-changing, but it's so much more enjoyable than people expect doing this work through the body and through movement. There's just this freedom and lightness and openness that people experience in their bodies for the first time. So I wanted to mention that. And then going back to NRE, yes, destabilizing, I think, is the word that you used. It's uh, such a unique sensation. It's so exciting, but often a dysregulating experience. Dopamine is surging. Serotonin is dropping. And this is happening at the same time in our brains and bodies. And it's like, we want more, but we don't have enough. And it can feel so overwhelming, so powerful that it often feels like we have to do something about it. Like I'm feeling so strongly. I have to do something about it. I have to tell my partner a thousand times in a row that I love them. I have to move across the country to go live right next to them. And it's like all these things that you're not supposed to do in NRE. And I, I experienced this too. It's like the, the feelings in my body were so intense and have been so intense that it's like I have to do something. But again, if we come back to the notion that these are uncomfortable or overwhelming sensations happening in the body, then we we can work with them without making real life rash decisions. Like we can take action in our bodies without actually taking an action we might regret in the real world. And I find it helpful for myself to acknowledge that I don't have to do anything about it. Like I can feel it and and be with it. And when that's not enough, then I can just follow what my body needs. Sometimes I can channel that surge of energy into movement or a workout, or I might go for a relaxing hike for something a little bit more gentle. So it can be a little bit like discharging discomfort around the new relationship energy, which can help us enjoy and harness the excitement and the pleasure without being too overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I, I really feel like you hit the nail on the head that sense like, oh, I have to do something about it. You know, there's, there's not only there's so much energy, but there's also this discomfort, like this kind of tickling discomfort underneath it that pushes us into making some kind of action, whether it's small actions, like I'm going to text them a billion times or those big actions, like I'm going to completely upend the structure of my life right now. And I'm realizing again, to tie it back to some of the cultural messaging that I was talking about earlier, something that I see sometimes when I see people struggle with not doing something, right? Like when people struggle with just sitting through it or, oh, I'm just going to move through it or I'm just going to take an action with my body, but not necessarily out in the real world, that I think we get this also this cultural sense of urgency around relationship formation. I think especially from our more traditional monogamous culture, when we're first falling in love with someone or first attracted to someone or first interested to some in, in someone, there is this received urgency around like, well, you better get that shit on lock right away, right? Mm -hmm. You better lock them down before they get pulled away by someone else, before they get interested in someone or something else. And so I, I find that's often in conflict within people, right? That again, cognitively, they can be like, I know it's not a good time for me to move across the country for this person. I know it's probably too early for me to say I love you to this person, but there's this deeper sense of like, but if I don't, something terrible is going to happen. Like if I don't, I'm going to lose them in some way. Or if I don't, they're going to think that I'm horrible or, or something like that. So I find that that's often a flavor that people are having to to sit with in the midst of all of this. 
I'm I'm laughing because I've just been through all, all of it. So I'm laughing mm-hmm. at myself. But um, mm-hmm. what, what you're really speaking to is like control. Oh, I love control. It's my favorite thing. Oh, yeah. Like I have to control. <laughs> I have to control the the pace or the intensity or the flow of this relationship. Yeah, I love it too because it helps me feel a sense of control in my body. Like I'm so uncomfortable with these feelings that if I can control something about the situation, I can change the way I'm feeling inside. But actually, we don't really have that much control over our relationships. I think when we really think about it, it's it doesn't help to try to rush or force or pressure anything. At least in my experience, I've found that to be true. And it really does come down to I need to control this discomfort or these sensations that I don't want to be feeling. So if I change the situation, it changes. It can change that up, right? Like if I get my new partner to commit to something that gives me security, there's nothing wrong with that. Like there's nothing wrong with asking for what you need and your partner may very well give it to you. And that's great. But I think it's a great question to ask ourselves what you know what's our intention here and is it because i'm trying to regulate my emotions would it look different if i regulated my emotions you know more so as a baseline and then asked for what i needed um and i I, i'm kind of stumbling upon saying this because i don't want to i don't want it to sound like it's a bad thing to need validation or to need a certain level of commitment and those are all such normal things that even the most secure people want validation and and need it to an extent. But this is where the opportunity lies for more self-security is like if you can play, and I like the word play, and be curious about how much can I expand my ability to be in the discomfort And how might that change what I'm wanting or asking? Like, sometimes I think I want things, like, I'm still figuring this out in a, in a, it's not even that new of a relationship, but it's very slow forming relationship where I'm like, I think that I want more. Like, I'm convinced that I want more, but do I? And every time I'm not even asking for more, like, I'm playing with just completely surrendering to the flow of it, which is so not my, my usual thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like this space opens up for me to heal even more and gain even more security. And yeah, I might decide at one point if it doesn't progress a certain way or shift a certain way that it's not for me and that's totally okay. But right now it's like so fulfilling and healing in itself. And that's another point that I want to make is like there is a lot of talk and content on social media that's like you have to be healed in yourself before you can be in a relationship. Actually, a lot of healing happens through relationships. And if we do that in a healthy way and not just relying on the relationship to be healing for us, then I call BS on that. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I am I think that for some reason, I, I don't think that I tend to fall victim to the like, oh, I have to be 100% healed or I need to completely love myself before I can love anybody else. And yet I still, every time I get into another relationship, I'm always surprised for some reason that I'm still learning things. Like, I think I still am just like, I thought, I thought I already knew everything. I thought I already knew how this all works. Like, can I, can I, when am I going to reach the point where I've just, I've already learned all the things and then I can (laughs) go into a relationship just knowing I've learned all my lessons and I don't need to learn anymore. So I, I think that's a weird kind of meta level lesson that I'm still 
working through myself. <laughs> Resonate hard with that. <laughs> but also like that would kind of be boring, right? Like if we knew all the things it's so we true. Done. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. All right. So we're drawing this conversation to a close, but the very last thing is you mentioned doing some retreat work earlier. And I'm super excited that you and I are going to be co-leading a retreat together in Costa Rica in April uh, for polyamorous folks. So why don't you share a little bit more about what that's about, where people can find more information about that? Yes. So I am super excited to do this too, by the way. It's in a nutshell, so much of what we talked about, you know, if you've listened to this episode and you're resonating with, wow, yes, I know all the things. I've got the understanding of what I need to do differently, how I want to enhance my relationships, it really essentially my my self-security and being able to regulate through these very normal challenges in non-monogamy. But my body isn't on board, but my body keeps overreacting, but I'm so overwhelmed by these feelings that I'm not making any progress. We will get to work on that for three nights together in Costa Rica in this luxurious space. And I'm not like I'm saying luxurious because that's a very intentional part of the treat where we really get to go in a space, a container where we're taken care of, where we feel pampered. Our nervous systems feel safe and relaxed to really make a lot of progress in a short period of time. And besides the intentional sessions that you and I are going to be doing, the whole experience is really curated to become more safely connected to your own body and to become more connected to each other, your partners and the other folks on retreat, to, you know, with with a chef cooking us food and the infinity pool and, you know, all that good stuff. It's, I think there's a lot of I know from running retreats in all different capacities that people have a hard time going to a weekly session and then going back to their normal life. And it just gets hard to integrate. But when we take the space somewhere away from home in a magical, luxurious space, again, saying luxuries, it creates such powerful, efficient shifts. So that's essentially what we're doing. So if people want to find out more about that, you can go to multiamory.com slash retreat. Feel free to mention the fact that you heard about it on the Multiamory podcast, and hopefully you can join us. And also speaking of, thank you so much for joining me on the show to have this conversation today, Ori. This has been fantastic. Um, I know that we could geek out about this stuff for many, 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 many more hours. But can you also share with our listeners, um, if they're more interested in your work specifically, where they can find out more about you and the stuff that you do? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on the show. You can all find me on my website at oritkrug.com. That's my name.com. You'll see everything that you are potentially interested in on there. <laughs> So that is the episode for today. The question that I'm going to be posting on our Instagram stories this week, I want to hear from you listeners. When are the moments when you notice that your brain and your body are disconnected? When are the moments that you notice your brain and your body are not on the same page? And remember that these are anonymous, so feel free to share as much as you like, or at least as much as can fit into the limited character space on the Instagram question. So go check that out on our Instagram stories. 
Also, the best place to share your thoughts about this episode with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to multiamory.com slash join. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 